Guys, it's great to see you today. I am so glad you're here as we kick off our brand new series called Winning at Work. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to tell you that this series, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? I mean, because everybody wants to win at work. But the truth is, most people are not. In fact, statistics tell us, you can check it out, you can Google it. A recent Gallup poll tells us that 70% of Americans hate their stupid jobs. People aren't winning at work. People are, we all desire to do work that we, that we love to do with people we love doing it with. But the truth is, a lot of people, they aren't winning at work. They're losing. In fact, a lot of people, their number one fantasy is to be able to walk up, walk into work, go up to their boss, and just like the old country song, tell their boss, hey, take this job and what? Shove it. Well, friends, you don't want to do that. (laughs) Unless you win the lottery or you get an inheritance, don't do that. But today we're talking about something a little different. In fact, if you pull out your outline, we have an outline for today's message. Today I want to talk to you about how you can take your job and love it and love what you do and how you do it. And and eventually, by God's grace and with his help, you can learn to win at work. Now, because statistics tell us 70% of people hate their jobs, the truth is a lot of you sitting right here in this room, you're not winning at work right now. You're struggling. In fact, some of you are struggling right now to find work. Some of you are out of work, you're looking for a job, and, you know, that's your biggest struggle right now. Some of you guys, you're not winning at work because you have work, but you hate what you do but you can't afford to quit and you feel stuck in a dead-end job. And some of you, you know, it's different for you. You you like what you're doing. You just don't like the people you have to do it with, right? (laughs) Some of you have the boss who's a jerk. Some of you has that co-worker who talks about everyone behind their back. Some of you, you have that person who always has a way of getting on your very last nerve, and so it's a struggle. You, you like what you do, but it's hard to go into work because you just don't like the people. And some of you are losing at work because you're losing your, your morals. Like you want to have integrity, you want to do the right things, but you feel like for me to get ahead, I got to take some shortcuts and do some things that I know are, they're a little shady. I shouldn't be doing it, but man, if I want to keep my job, I have to cut some corners. And some of you, you're, t- you're not winning at work, you're losing because to be honest, There's no more challenge. Like, you can do your job in your sleep, and it's just boring. And you're going in the back of your mind, you're wondering, man, if I stay at this job, am I going to wake up 10, 20 years from now and feel like I wasted my life and wasted my potential? And some of you, it's the other side of the spectrum. You're not winning at work because your work is consuming your whole life. Some of you, your work is costing you your family, your marriage, your faith. And today, I want to tell you, if you have some, some of those struggles in the workplace, no work, bad work, bad people to work with, work consuming you, bored or struggling, I want to tell you that God has some good news for you. In fact, God's word has some great instructions on how you can learn to win at work. And so we have an outline for our message today. Let me encourage you to take this out. Light blue sheet, all the verses from the Bible we'll be looking at are printed there for you. There's a place to take some notes if that's helpful for you. And right off the top, 
I want to start with a quote from Pastor Rick Warren, who wrote this book, called the best-selling book, called The Purpose Driven Life. And in this book, he said something right at the beginning about work. This is what he said. It's usually meaningless work, not overwork, that wears us down, saps our strength, and robs our joy. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that if you don't see purpose and meaning in your work, if, if you don't connect what you do to what God wants you to do and his purpose, if you don't connect it to God, your work is going to suck you dry, burn you out, and in the end, you won't win at work, you'll lose. That's why we're starting this whole series, the very first message, winning at work, we're going to come back to God's purpose for work in your life. Do you know the Bible clearly teaches that not only do you matter to God, meaning he, he loves you, you're precious to him, you matter to God, but not only that, did you understand the Bible teaches what you do matters to God? And the reality is what you do most is work. Statistics tell us that the average person spends up to 60% of their waking hours at work or work-related activities like getting ready, commuting, driving home. 60% of your waking hours are spent connecting to work. Work is not only where we spend most of our time, it's where most people experience the greatest amounts of stress, conflict, and discouragement. I think the primary reason that many of us struggle to win at work is really connected to two fundamental, fundamental misunderstandings about the role of work in our lives. And I printed those two on your outline, and I hope you'll write, the, write them down. The first fundamental misunderstanding about the role of work is thinking that my work and my worship are not connected. And friends, it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding that so many people live with, especially men. And let me, let me see if I can explain it this way. For men, for most of us, as men, how we like function in the world is we compartmentalize our lives. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. I, 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 I brought my, one of my dressers from home. Do you know my home? I compartmentalize my clothes in drawers, like top drawer socks and underwear, I know a little TMI for you, but socks and underwear, T-shirts, shorts and sweatpants, jeans, and a junk drawer. You know, that's how I, you know, I, that's how I, like, organize my clothes so I can function, you know, in a wardrobe kind of way, where I can find what I need and live it out. And many of you, that's how you use your dresser, right? Men, do you know a lot of us, we do that with our lives in general, like we have our work life. And then we compartmentalize, and we have our family and church life and money and uh, social and recreational life. And we function that way. And we separate things like that. And that's how we function in the world. But here's, here's the deal, friends. Because we separate our work from our worship, what happens is that every Monday, millions of people and millions of people who believe in God, man, they shut the door on their worship Come Monday morning, they go to work, and millions of people, they go to work, and they leave God at home. And it's a tragedy, friends. God never intended it for us to live out our lives this way. In fact, philosopher Albert Camus said this on your outline. He said, life goes rotten without work. In fact, friends, you understand, work is not a curse. Work is not a result of the fall. God made you to work. It's a gift from him. 
It's a good thing. And if you don't have work, if you're not doing the work God made you to do, life goes rotten without work. And yet, check this out. Life stifles and dies when work becomes soulless. When it becomes disconnected to our soul and our faith, with God, faith in God. When your work and worship are disconnected, you're going to end up losing at work and work will become a grind for you. And here's why. God doesn't want you to face the pressures and problems of your work life alone. And if you fall into this misunderstanding that work and worship are not connected, your faith, it will never be real to you, and it will never be real through you. It will just be one of the drawers in your life. It will be like something you do on the weekend, like a hobby, like going golfing or watching the football game or mowing the lawn. But come Monday morning, in your head, you're going, it's time to get back to the real world, and God never intended for that to happen. Do you know, according to the Bible, this is, it's not supposed to look like this. Well, it looks like this, but the whole time, you can have all your drawers, guys. But you remember that behind the drawers, you have what? God encompassing, encasing, surrounding all that you are, all that you do. You remember every drawer. Your job is to figure out how do I honor and glorify God in my work, in my family, with my money, in my worship, in my social relationships. See, do you understand? This is the difference, guys. This is the difference between religion, which is something you do, Versus Christianity, which is a relationship. Do you understand being a Christian means that you make a choice to open up your heart to ask Christ to come be your Lord and forgiver. You ask him to forgive all your sins, give you the gift of eternal life as you put your faith and trust and follow him as Lord. And when you do that, the Bible says that Jesus will actually come live in you. By his Holy Spirit, 24-7, Jesus said, I'll live in you, I'll never leave or forsake you. And because he's with you all the time, wherever you go, that means he's with you when you go to work. When you go to work. And the Bible explains it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, this is what it says. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for what? Do it all for the glory of God. No matter which drawer you're functioning in, do it all for the glory of God. And friends, what you do most is you work. That means part of your homework, part of your call. You have to, when's the last time you sat down and took some time to figure out how do I honor and glorify God at my work? Come Monday morning while I'm driving to work and I'm praying, God, how can I honor and glorify you in my work today? And we're going to address that in our message. It's the first misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding that people have about work, few will admit it, but it's, it's a true misunderstanding, is that my work becomes what I worship. It becomes what I worship. My work becomes my God. In Exodus chapter 20, we have God's top 10 list. That's where God spells out his 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. In fact, did you know one of the commandments 
relates to your work. In Exodus 20, verse 9, it says this, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, and then you're to take a day of rest. Like God, out of his care for you, he says, I want you to pace it out where you have, you know, you work and then you recover. You work and then you rest and reflect and reconnect. And so God built, out of his love for you, he built that pattern. So he gave us a command about work and rest. But the very first commandment, check it out, in Exodus 20, verse 3, it says this. You shall have no other gods before me. See, God doesn't want us to place any of the drawers above him. Not work, not family, not money. Nothing is to come before God. Now, it may sound a little strange to you talking about work like it's a God or something you worship. But friends, a lot of you, how, you live, how you're living out your daily life, you're idolizing your work. Now, some of you think an idol is something like a little carved wooden image. But you know, on your outline, would you write down this definition of an idol? An idol is anything that becomes so sacred that it defines our self-worth, becomes a controlling center of life, and it becomes the last to go on our list of priorities. It finds our self-worth, becomes our controlling center, last to go. And that what I just described to you, like most of you don't like driving to work Monday morning before you walk in the doors. You don't get on your knees and go like this to your job. But what a lot of you are doing, like your job defines your self-worth, your self-importance. And God never intended for your job to do that. Funny story. There was a general in the army. He got a promotion, and they moved his office to the Pentagon. And he's setting up his new office, and he's looking out the window of his office, and he sees a private walking towards his office with the toolbox. And so he kind of waves the soldier in, but as he's walking in, he grabs the phone, and the general says, Uh, Sure, Mr. President. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you, too. Yeah, Mr. President. Yeah, anytime you need my advice, feel free to call me at this number. Yeah, well, Mr. President, I'm at your service. Okay, take care. Have a good day. Hangs up the phone, and he says, okay, Private, how can I help you? And the Private very nervously says, "Uh, I'm here to uh, hook up your phone. (laughs) Like... Like that, I mean, even someone like a general, friends, listen to me. God gave us work to bring us dignity and responsibility and accomplishment, but He never intended for your work to define your worth. See, many of us fall into the trap of going after power or position to feel better about ourselves, to feel more important. But here's the danger if you allow your job, to define your self-worth, what happens to you when you lose your job? See, God, God wants you to build your worth on something that can never be taken from you, and that's your relationship with him, because he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So an idol, something that defines your worth, becomes a controlling center of life. I've seen people make every decision, and instead of asking God, what do you want me to do? They make every decision based on their job. And, this, and then this idea of the last thing to go. Friends, I've seen people sacrifice their marriage, their faith, and their health just to, like, get ahead in the workplace. Guys, you don't want to make your job your idol. 
If you do that, you'll never win at work. You'll never find true success. In fact, take to heart what it says on the bottom of your outline. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says this. We leave this world just as we entered it, with nothing in spite of all our work. There is nothing we can take with us. Would you underline that phrase, in spite of all our work? Kind of reminds me of this greedy workaholic who just lived to make money, but he didn't trust anybody, and he hoarded all his money in a suitcase in the garage. Well, at the end of his life, he gets a terminal disease, and he knows he's going to die. So he goes and talks to a pastor. He says, Pastor, I'm going to pay you some good money to do my funeral, but I want you to make a promise to me. In my garage is a suitcase filled with $6.1 million. He said to the pastor, I want you to prom- I want you to swear to God that when I die, you're going to put all that money in my casket with me when, when I die. It's my money. I earned it. I want to take it with me to the afterlife. I want you to promise. And the pastor said, okay, I, I promise when I do your funeral, the last thing I do is I'll put the money in your casket. So the man gets sick. He dies. The day of his funeral, the pastor goes to his house, goes to the garage. He gets the suitcase filled with money, drives to the bank, puts the money in his bank account. Then he goes to do the funeral, and as they're lowering the casket, the last thing the pastor does is he puts a check in for the full amount. Check in for the full Smart, smart pastor, right? Smart pastor. That guy, he thought, he, friends, in spite of all your work, Man, you take nothing with you. That guy, he, six, a lot of you, $6.1 million. That guy's a success. He's a winner. In the end, what did he take with him? Nothing. nothing. He lost it. Friends, I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want you to lose it all in the end. I want you to win at work. So with the rest of the time that I have to share with you, I want to talk to you on the back of your outline. Three things you can do to make sure that you win at work that you win at work. And the first thing is so important, would you write this down? If you want to win at work, number one is you have to redefine winning. So many people have the wrong definition of what it means to win. Do you know it's possible to win a battle and lose a war, right? It's possible to win an argument and lose a marriage. It's possible to win a promotion and lose your purpose, Do you know, in the late 70s, there was a popular popular bumper sticker that said this, he who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. Well, shortly after that, there was a new bumper sticker that said this, he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? (laughs) So you think, you know, getting more, having more money, more stuff, more things. If I do that, I win. Friends, that's not necessarily winning. That's not necessarily the right definition of winning. Winning. This is so key. Let me give you a real-life example of someone who, who went down that road, and in the end, he realized, man, he didn't win. He lost. AT&T, top executive, John DeButts. Man, he had over a million employees. Heads of governments called him to consult with him about communication issues. He was wealthy, powerful, influential. Most of you sitting here today would call that man a winner. But he got diabetes. He had a long bout with health issues. And in the end, he had to have his leg amputated. This is what John DeButts writes, and I quote him. He writes, with millions of employees and lots of people I knew, no one 
except my wife visited me in the hospital. I received no phone calls. Not one person sent me a card. In the end, this is what he concluded. His wallet was full, but his life was empty. It kind of echoes the warning of Jesus in Luke 12, 15 on your outline, where Jesus said these words, beware. Don't always be wishing for what you don't have, for real life and real living are not related to how rich we are. Would you underline those two phrases, real life and real living? Now, guys, don't get me wrong. There, there's nothing wrong with having ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to maximize your potential and, and go after a promotion or, or, or increase your job opportunity. Nothing wrong with that. But you want to make sure as you're going after those things that you have the right definition of winning. And to help capture what I'm talking about, I prepared a, a clip from you of a classic battle that most of you, as soon as you see the clip, you're going to relate to because it will help make sure that you're fighting to win the right things. In this clip, I want to bring you back to a Christmas classic. This Christmas classic is a, really a battle between two people. One is by the name of Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter is rich and influential and powerful. Most people would say that he was a success. And then we have George Bailey, who struggles all his life to make ends meet. He leads a small, struggling building alone, but all his life, he spends his life helping others, making the right choices. But inside, like many of you, he doesn't feel like a winner. He doesn't feel successful. He feels, in fact, he feels like such a loser that he almost loses his life over a meager $8,000. Well, in this clip, he has a moment of clarity, like a divine wake-up call where God brings him back to what really matters most. And in this clip, you are going to hear the winning statement. I want you to listen for it because when I come back, I'm going to ask you, what was the winning statement in this clip? Take a look. Clarence! Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again! Please, God! Let me live again. Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now, get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals! Zuzu... There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas, Daddy! Daddy! Kids! Pete! 
Oh, I could eat you up. <laughs> Where's your mother? She went looking for you. With Uncle she... Billy. Daddy! Zozo, Zozo, my little ginger snap. How do you feel? Fine. Not a smidge of temperature. Not a smidge of temperature. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hello. George. George, darling. Mary. Mary. George, darling, where are you? Oh, George, 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 now you stand right over here by the tree. Right there. And don't move. Don't move. What's happening? Oh, I hear them coming now. George, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I wouldn't have a wrinkle over my head if it wasn't for you, George. Just a minute. Just a minute. Quiet, everybody. Quiet. Quiet. Now get this. It's from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Christ is born in right in the middle of it, as soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie, a toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> So how many of you watch that movie every Christmas? So you know the battle. In fact, in the movie, it's a wonderful life. There was a defining moment where the temptation was thrown out. In fact, Mr. Potter offered George Bailey, hey, George, come work for me. I'll give you money. I'll give you cars. I'll give you power. He came this close to caving, right? Then he threw that away. And then in this divine breakthrough moment, now bring me back. I want to live. I want to win in the ways that really matter. And then we saw the winning statement. Mr. Potter, money, wealth, power, position. George Bailey, did you hear the winning statement in the clip? When his brother Harry lifted the glass and said, to my big brother George, the what? The richest man in town. He won. Friends, I don't know about you, but can I tell you, I mean, sincerely, like many of you, I, and I don't live a house in the hills. I don't drive a Lexus. I, I live many times. It's paycheck to paycheck. But can I tell you, as I stand before you this morning, I feel like the richest man in Fremont. Man, I have a wife who adores me. I have kids who respect and honor me. I have awesome friends who always have my back. I have a ministry that matters. I'm doing what God made me to do. And I feel like the richest man in Fremont. And I'm winning. 
and I want that for you, but, but for that to happen for you, you've got to have the right definition, right? So pull out your pen and write this down. This is true winning. This is what it means to win. Loving Christ, loving others, and living life on purpose. And friends, I didn't come up with this on my own. I mean, it's right out of the Bible. Let me give you an example of someone who had to redefine success in their life. The most famous character next to Jesus in the New Testament was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul worked so hard to get the right education so that he can get the high position of becoming a Pharisee. Do you understand, in Jewish culture, when you were a Pharisee, you had power, you had position, you had authority, and all the wealth that came with it. The Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. And friends, can I tell you this? The Apostle Paul came to a crisis of faith where he had to choose what he would chase after in his life. Would he go down the road of chasing after being a Pharisee, or would he choose God's purpose and fully follow Christ? He knew if he went after Christ, it would cost him power, position, fame, and fortune. Funny thing is, here we are 2,000 years later. Talk about fame. We're still talking about the Apostle Paul. He chose to follow Christ, and this is how he wrote about the choice he made, about how he redefined winning. This is what he said, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He said, all the things that I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Would you underline that phrase, all the things I once thought were so important? He said, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. You see, the Apostle Paul, he redefined success as loving Christ, loving others, fulfilling God's purpose and plan for his life. And friends, when you do that, regardless of what work you're, what, what you do for your work, you're going to win in life. So that's the first step. The second thing I'd say, if you want to win at work, remember who you really work for. Remember who you really work for. You know, in 2009, uh, they came out with a new reality television series, and it was called Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen that show, Undercover Boss? Kind of how it worked is, like, one of the bosses of a big corporation, he would, like, disguise himself, and he would go in, like, as a new worker in the company, like, at the lowest level of the company. And he's kind of spying on the workers, checking out what's the morale, what's the attitude, are people really doing their jobs? And he'd work with them for a week. And after the week was over, he'd take all his workers into his office. He'd take his disguise off. And he, you know, then they realized he was the boss. And it's funny because all the people who did a really good job, they got rewarded. Like they got promotions and financial compensation. And those who didn't do so well, um, you know, other things happened to them. So Undercover Boss, you remember that show. Well, do you realize that if you are a Christ follower, that you have an undercover boss? He's with you all the time. He's watching you, and he's watching how you work. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, it says this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for who? The Lord. The Lord. 
underline as working for the Lord and then not for men since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, did you know that according to God, there is no job that is too menial? There's no job that's too insignificant that when you have the right heart, the right motive, and you work as if you're doing it for God, regardless of who signs your paycheck, if you work with God as your true boss, man, you're going to win. You're going to win. In fact, you may be thinking, you know, Pastor Paul, that's easy for you to say. I mean, you work for the church. Like, God is your boss. Well, can, can I tell you this? Before I ever became a pastor, as a follower of Christ, I had 12 different jobs. Every single one, I worked this way. Like, God, you're my boss. I'm going to do it for you. When I went into work, I was prayed up. As I did my work, I did my best to do it for him, to try to honor him and share my faith. And every single job I've had for my whole life, God has blessed me and helped me and multiplied opportunities for me. And I'll tell you, this is what I know. This is what I've observed. People who work as if God is their boss, they always bring two things to work with them. In fact, I hope you'll write these down. Two characteristics. First of all, they bring excellence. Because we have an excellent God, and if we're working for him, we should bring excellence. Now, some of you say, well, you know, Pastor Paul, man, when I go to my work, I always give 100%. The only problem is it's like 12% on Monday, 23% Tuesday, 40%, you know. <laughs> this idea that, hey, if God's my boss, man, I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring it. I'm going to do it with integrity and effort because I'm going to glorify God in all that I do, including my work. So you're going to bring excellence. In fact, I love this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, the quote is so good. I, I just put a little snippet on your outline, but I'd like to read the entire quote to you. It goes like this. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said these words. We are challenged on every hand to work tirelessly to achieve excellence in our life work. Not all men are called to be specialized or professional in their jobs. Even few rise to the heights of genius in the arts and sciences. Many are called to be laborers in factories, fields, and streets. But no work is insignificant. Then he says this. There's a quote on your outline. All labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaken with excellence. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth would pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Now, let me ask you, when you go to work, are you bringing your best? Are you bringing excellence because if you're doing it for god you're going to bring excellence and then secondly would you write this down you'll bring enthusiasm you'll bring enthusiasm which from the latin is in theos in god meaning filled up with god i'm working for god and i i'm bringing all the life and joy and energy that he has poured into me i'm bringing that to the workplace with me 
And that means basically that if you're doing it for God, friends, you're going to do it with a cheerful attitude. You know, several years ago, I had the opportunity, I just had a conference. I stayed at the hotel, and when I went down to breakfast, they had a continental breakfast in this little cafeteria setting. All the chairs were taken except for the chair directly across from me, and this woman sits down. So we strike up a conversation. I tell her I'm a pastor, and I say, oh, by the way, what do you do? And she said, well, believe it or not, uh, my job is to fire people. I work for some very large corporations. They don't like to have someone on site that does the firing because it makes people nervous. So when they need to fire someone, they fly me in and I fire them. I was a little nervous right there. I said, hey, you're not there here to see me, right? I'm a, you know. I said, hey, let me ask you a question. What is the number one reason that you fire people? Man, she didn't even blink an eye. She said, bad attitude. Bad attitude. She said, rarely do I fire someone because of lack of skill. In fact, many people that I fire, she said, are very good at their jobs, very highly skilled and competent, but the main reason I fire them is they can't get along with people. They're always negative and complaining and sucking the life and morale out, out of the team, and so they bring me in, and that's the number one reason I fire people. Bad attitude. Have you ever been in a workplace with someone? You ever work with someone with a bad attitude? You ever go into a workplace and you're asking for help and you, that person has a bad attitude, like you're like annoying them because you're asking them like to do their job. You know what I'm saying? Bad attitude, negative attitude, complaining attitude because they have no enthusiasm. But friends, if you're doing it for God, you're going to want to practice what Romans 12, 11 says on your outline. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord, what? Enthusiastically. So you want to win at work? Here's the deal. Redefine winning. Number two, remember who your real boss is. And then three, would you write this down? This is so key. You want to win at work? Make your work a labor of love. Make your work a labor of love. I love what Mother Teresa says on your outline. It's not so much what you do that matters, but how much love you put into it. In fact, I'd like to share with you a little poem about loving your work from my favorite theologian, Dr. Uh, Seuss. Dr. Seuss wrote a poem about loving your work, and this is what Dr. Seuss says. This is what he wrote. I love my job. I love the pay. I love it more and more each day. I love my boss. He is the best. And I love his boss and all the rest. I love my office and its location. I even hate to take vacation. I love my furniture, drab and gray, and the piles of paper that grow each day. I love to work among my peers. I love their leers and jeers and sneers. I love this work. I love the chores. And I love the meetings with the deadly bores. I love my job, and I, I'll say it again. I even love these friendly men, these friendly men who've come today in clean white coats to take me away. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? You, you know why I've shared this poem from Dr. Seuss? Because when I said, make your work a labor of love, some of you are thinking, Pastor Paul, are you crazy? Are you crazy? No one in my workplace is trying to show love. Everybody's trying to get ahead, to look out for number one, to, to make sure they don't get laid off. Friends, can I, can I ask you, 
Who in your work world is taking time to pray for their co-workers? Who is taking the initiative to befriend the lonely, encourage the weary, and give a hug to the neglected? Who at your job is inviting other people to go to church? Who's taking an interest in their souls? Who in your workplace is telling people about the precious gift of God's forgiveness that God offers for anyone who will trust his son, Jesus Christ? Who in your workplace is working for eternal causes and not just a paycheck? Friends, listen to me. Come Monday morning, it could be you. It could be you. You can start this week to make your work a labor of love for God and all the people he cares about. Now, let me, let me tell you the truth here. Let's pause. Like, there are, there, you know, when you think of all the people, 800 people coming to Crossroads on the weekend, you know, but less than 1% of those people are what the world would say are super successful. Most of us, 99% of us, Man, we're living ordinary, everyday lives, just trying to make it in the world. And so by the world standards, most of us will never have a house in the Fremont Hills, big mansion, drive a Lexus, be, travel the world in first-class carriages. And so the, by the world standards, most of you are not going to be super successful. But friends, can I tell you, in God's eyes, if you do it His way, Man, you can be a winner, and you can win at work, because here's God's promise. Let's close with this. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13 tells us, if you want to win at work, check this out. Love never fails, wins every time. There are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Guys, this week, let's win at work. Let's redefine winning Let's remember who we really work for and then put your heart in it and make your work a labor of love. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you've uh, shown your love for us by sending Christ. And Lord, right now, first of all, I want to pray for those without work who are struggling and their heart is just hungry to find work and get a job. And I pray that even this week, you'd open up some doors of opportunity, that even this week you'd provide a job. And for those who are stuck in a job where they're just struggling, hard people to work with, difficult, like they're dreading Monday morning, I pray that you would give them just the strength to try to work for you and do it your way and bring love and heart and trust that you will see them and reward them and honor them for trying to bring your love into the workplace. And help us all, Lord, in our quest to let you, to glorify you in all that we do, including our work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple things I want to say to you. First of all, in your program, there's a little winning at work invitation card. Kind of a little my challenge to you is, is uh, guys, put that card in your wallet. Ladies, keep that card in your purse. And as you're going through your work week, you see someone struggling, someone complaining about their job, man, just pull that card out and say, hey, we're talking about work at my church. You should come check out a service and invite them to come with you next week. Also want to say, I um, just want to let you know that starting tomorrow morning, I am going to start using this book, 
uh, by Pastor Rick Warren, the purpose-driven life, it's like 40 days of purpose. Like there's a reading every day for 40 days to kind of connect you to God and his purpose for you. So over the next 50 days, I'm going to read 40 days of purpose. I'm a little slow and I need a little grace. So between now and like June 1st, I'm just going to have a time to just focus in, like, God, what's your calling and purpose on my life? And if any of you would like to join me on this journey of just daily connecting with God through a little reading and prayer time, I have some extra copies of this book. I'm going to be hanging out in the Connection Corner. Come see me, and I'll give you a copy of the book, and we'll just take this journey together over the next 50 days. And uh, then, then also... Uh, If you're thinking about, like, you want to give your heart to Christ or get baptized, right after this service ends in the overflow room, we're going to have the follower of Christ class. And uh, it's a great class, so it's not too late. You can jump in on that class. And we ask before you get baptized to go through that class because we have some baptisms coming up. So uh, one last thing, and then we'll have our blessing. I'm going to ask Mike Nichols to come join me on stage. Talk about someone we want to win at work. Mike is our construction superintendent for our new worship center. Now, believe me, we want this guy to win at work, right? We want him to work as if God was his boss, right? And we want him to put his heart in it to make it a labor of love. So we want to pray and ask God to bless him and to leverage all his skill and experience as he leads the building of our worship center. Uh, Mike also asked me to just say a couple of things, like with building a building, he said the two things that you, that you need to have is flexibility and patience, because it's going to be uh, starts and stops. You're going to see a lot happening, like they're going to level the front lawn, and they're going to do the parking lot, and it's lots happening, and then there'll be a season where it looks like nothing's going on. Believe me, there's a lot happening, but you're just not going to see it. Be patient, be flexible, and then there'll be another big season where there's a lot happening. So all through that, Mike's going to be the guy who's on site, and if you have any questions for him or you want to talk to him, he's going to be hanging out in the lobby after this service. Man, come by and say hello to him but I want God to bless him and use him. This is the first, he's built a lot of buildings. First church he's ever built. It's also going to be the best church he's ever built, right? So why don't you all stand? We're going we're gonna to have a blessing for Mike, and then I'd like to bless all of you. So if you feel comfortable lifting a hand towards heaven, Lord, thank you for sending Mike Nichols to us. We know that you have gifted and called him for such a time as this. We pray that you'd leverage all his skill, all his wisdom, all his experience to create a great worship center that will help many in our community know the love of Jesus. Bless his health, bless his family, cover him with your amazing grace, and give him the energy and strength to do what you made him to do so he wins at work. And now may the loving God of all creation, the God who sees and cares about you, may he meet your needs, heal your hearts, and use you to make a loving difference in the world. Go with the love of Jesus Christ, and God bless you, everyone. Amen.